Well, I wonder how many of us uh, this week, uh, or maybe even this morning, or maybe even since you arrived in church this morning, has been annoyed by somebody else. Has that happened to you this week, this morning, since being at church? Well, maybe it was something really silly, like you got Q-jumped in the supermarket. Doesn't that make you angry? It does me. Uh, maybe this morning, even before you've arrived at church, some child has driven you to absolute distraction and they probably weren't even yours. Um, maybe you've been on the receiving end of some aggression because uh, another driver cut you up and then blessed you with some hand gestures. <laughs> maybe you've been this week the recipient of some really bad customer service. Stuff happens in life, doesn't it, that really bothers us, it annoys us. And maybe some of these examples are really quite trivial, but then there's other stuff that happens in life that is not just annoying, but actually it deeply hurts us and it pains us. As we were reflecting last weekend, if you were with us, the reality of life is that stuff happens in life. Stuff hits the proverbial fan in life, doesn't it? And the vast majority of us will have been on the receiving end of something said or done during this last week that has hurt us, and even this morning we're carrying that hurt and that pain into our gathering. Some of us have um, had accidents or illnesses happening in life, and they hurt us. They're really difficult things to deal with, but perhaps the deepest hurts that we experience in life, and the ones which arguably are the hardest to deal with, more often than not come from other people, and often it's people that we love or who love us. So we have a moment of really raw honesty together for a moment. Relationships can be the most amazing and tremendous source of blessing, can't they? They can bring so much joy into our lives, but the reality is the relationships that we enjoy, sometimes we also endure, and they bring the greatest possible stress, distress, bitterness, and abrasiveness into our lives. Maybe you've heard the, the saying before, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. What a load of claptrap. <laughs> I won't say what I said in the first service by mistake when I said the word claptrap. <laughs> Sticks and stones might break our bones, but the words of other people actually have the potential to rip our hearts out and to destroy us. Our words are weapons, and actually our words are possibly the most effective weapons that we have in our arsenal. But two words can be a source for good. Words can be things that we use to bring healing. And the Bible knows that reality to be true. Proverbs 12, 18. Some people make cutting remarks, but the words of the wise bring healing. Lord, make my words wise. Ephesians 4.29, let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. Our words have the power of life, but they also have the power of death. And so we need to choose and we need to use our words incredibly carefully. Of course, being a follower of Jesus, and we were thinking a bit about this last weekend as well, weren't we? It doesn't protect us from the sticks. It won't protect us from the stones, and it's not going to protect us from other people's destructive words. But being a Christian does mean that if those things happen to us, then we should, at least in our very best moments, and as the Spirit empowers us, react in a different way to somebody who is not a Christian. Why? Because being a Christian means being and acting and responding differently in a godlike way. Now, let me be really honest with you this morning. I suspect my words on this theme are going to make absolutely no difference to the conflict that's happening in Israel and Gaza or Ukraine but I guess my great hope this morning is I speak about pain and about some of the hurts that we might endure in life, that it will make a little difference to, to our lives as we live them day by day. 
What should we do if we found our, find ourselves being hurt by another person? Well, let me give you four don'ts. And the first is don't be an Arnie. I don't know if you've ever noticed, and I know he's a bit of an old-fashioned example, but he's probably the best example I can think of. Arnold Schwarzenegger in films never, ever gets hurt. Think of the Terminator if you've seen it. He just ignores the pain and he carries on regardless with the promise, hasta la vista, baby, I'll be back. <laughs> Thank you. My impression is about as good as my impression of his physique. But, you know, some of us respond in a very similar way when we get hurt. We suffer in silence. We, we bite the bullet. We quietly disappear until we're ready to return to the battle again. We put on the macho man, the macho woman image, and we can go around pretending that nothing's happened to us, hoping that the whole thing will just go away. Some of us deny the hurt, or some of us just pretend that the words never happened in the first place. And we minimize the whole event, saying, ah, it was no big deal, when the truth is we're absolutely broken inside. Now, that's been my life strategy for dealing with hurt and pain and conflict for as long as I can remember, and I suspect I'm not alone in that. But ignoring our hurt never, ever heals it, and if we leave these things that have hurt us, all that happens is they fester and they end up getting worse. We can end up living a little bit like that volcano in Iceland that's bubbling away, ready to erupt any moment, and everybody around us is evacuating because they know it's about to happen. Ignoring our hurt and not dealing with it doesn't deal with it. So is there another way? Well, maybe you don't ignore your hurt. Maybe you run from it. And my second don't is don't be a bolt. I'm just blessing you with muscular men uh, today. Uh, my third man is not quite so muscular. You know, it's human nature, isn't it, to, to run when we face difficulty, but it's rarely a helpful response unless you're being chased by a bloodthirsty wolf or a saber-toothed tiger. You know, I suspect it's not by accident that all doors to public buildings open, out, open outwards because when people panic, they run, and they need to have the greatest opportunity when they hit the door of being able to escape. And I suspect some of us have metaphorically organized our life in that kind of a way. The doors are always poised, ready to open outward, so that when we run, we have the greatest possible opportunity of escaping from our pain. As I think about David, the man who penned Psalm 23 that we've been looking at over these last five weeks, we've got one more week to go, I, I sense that, that to run was David's default response in life. Psalm 55, one of David's psalms, says this, "'My thoughts trouble me and I'm distraught because of what my enemy is saying and the threats of the wicked.'" For they bring down suffering on me. Fear and trembling have beset me. Horror has overwhelmed me. And then he says this. I said, oh, that I had the wings of a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. I would flee far away. I'd run and stay in the desert. I would hurry to my place of shelter far from the tempest and from the storm. David was a runner. I can identify with David. But maybe if David were alive today, he wouldn't go to the shelter or to the desert. Maybe David's escape would be going to the movies and just binge-watching movies. Maybe he would plug into the latest box set and disconnect from the world by watching that. Maybe David would be somebody who doom-scrolled on, on social media. Maybe David would turn to alcohol or drugs or gambling or maybe engage in some retail therapy. I, I guess the list goes on. 
But the problem is, is when we escape from life with those things and we don't face the real world, we're kind of connected to that stuff that troubles us on an elastic band. And at some point, we're going to run so far, the band's going to snap and it's going to twang us in the back and it's going to hurt even more than perhaps the initial pain did. Running when people hurt us is rarely a good response. My third muscular man, don't be a wally. (laughs) So some of us don't run. Some of us won't ignore our hurt, but instead we'll hide it. We'll keep the hurt to ourselves. We won't tell anybody. Our default is to be like a Wally uh, or to be like a Waldo if you're American. Now, I know the Wally response is true partially because some of us are experts at camouflaging our pain. We come to church on a Sunday, nice clothes, covered in coffee, pleasant homes, uh, smart cars, wearing a pleasant smile. But behind that smart exterior, some of us are hurting really badly because of something that's been done to us or that we've done to somebody else. And when you talk to people who do this, how do they respond when you ask how they are? They say, oh, I'm fine. It's the most common lie that's told every single day of the week. I heard a great saying the other day. Somebody said, Christians don't lie. Christians don't speak lies. Christians sing lies. And when we say, how are we doing? And we say, I'm fine. All we're doing is deceiving ourselves and trying to deceive others. We'll never admit we're hurt or that somebody has hurt our feelings. So we disguise how we really feel behind some kind of a facade. David again, Psalm 32, a different psalm, when he'd been hurt by King Saul, he said this, when I keep things to myself, I feel weak deep inside, and I moaned all day long. Hiding a hurt, even hiding your sin, only intensifies that hurt or that sin. It only makes things worse. Here's one of my cheesy rhymes that you really love. Revealing your feeling is part of your healing. It's cheesy, but it's true. Revealing your feeling is part of your healing. So don't be a wally. Don't try and hide. But how about another response? When people hurt us, it's really easy, isn't it, to become very bitter about the situation that we've been involved in, and we end up becoming intent on revenge. We can end up becoming a a resentful person, resentful towards the person who's wronged us. And if we're being really honest this morning, most of us would be ready to admit at some point in life we've been an avenger, somebody who's trying to right the wrong. And it often starts in our thinking, doesn't it? I can't believe that they did that to me. I can't believe that he or she said that to me, to me of all people. And you know what? Here's what I've discovered, and it's really annoying, is when somebody says something to you that's hurtful, the really good cutting retort that you wanted to say in the moment comes to you three hours later when it's far too late to say it. And of course, what happens then is we enter into that resentment spiral, and it grows, and our desire for revenge becomes ever greater because we didn't respond in the moment the way we might have wanted to, even if we shouldn't have. Job, that cheery chap in in the book of Job, Job 18 verse 4 says this, you're only hurting yourself with your anger. We only hurt ourselves with our anger. Bitterness hurts us far more than any hurt we are likely to receive from another person. When bitterness takes root in our lives, it's like a poison that eats away the soul and kills the very people that we are. So if none of these responses or approaches will heal our hurts, what then should we do? Well, this is where I think Psalm 23 verse 5 has some answers for us. Now, we're going to dive straight in at verse 5 because um, I'm hoping by now most of us will have understood uh, the beginning of uh, Psalm 23. 
Verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. That's this week's verse. And then next week, surely your goodness and your love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, in verse 5, and I expect you've noticed this, the scene changes from a field to a feast. Now, on the surface, that might sound like two utterly unrelated metaphors, but I want to suggest they're connected, and I hope you'll see that this morning. These seemingly unrelated metaphors of a field and a feast actually become the bridge into verse 6, which is what we're going to look at next weekend. And David, as he uses this image of a banquet, he gives us three really good symbols that illustrates three steps that we can take if we're going to let God deal with our hurts and our pains. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup, it overflows. So firstly, the challenge is to let God deal with our enemies. Because life is life and life is complex, we're all going to gather a few enemies as we do the journey of life. You know the people, the people you'd never go on holiday with, uh, the people that actually, if you're really honest, you'd rather you never saw ever again. And when we're hurting, we can have this temptation to want to settle the score. We can have this temptation to somehow get even with the other person to be an avenger. But I think God reveals to us in this psalm that actually he has another way, and it's a better way that involves God, uh, allows God to settle the score with those who have wronged us. David says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, he says, in the presence of my enemies. Now, in the whole of this psalm, I think this is one of the hardest parts of Psalm 23 to interpret. But I think what God is saying here is best understood in an explanation of the role of the shepherd with his sheep. You see, sheep by nature have lots of natural enemies. From the aggression of the wolf to the irritation of a a tick, sheep are defenseless animals. Their teeth are a bit useless, really. I mean, they're good for chewing grass, but nothing else. They cannot bite somebody else with their teeth. Sheep don't have any claws that they can use to scrape another individual. They can't really kick, and they can't really run, and certainly can't run for a long distance. Now, somebody said to me this week, do you know what? As we've journeyed through Psalm 23, you've been incredibly sheepist. They said, why do you have such a downer on sheep? And the truth is, I don't have a downer on sheep. I'm not trying to be horrible to sheep, but in reality, they don't do anything other than provide the raw material for woolly jumpers or complement a mint sauce. (laughs) A sheep cannot be safe unless somebody else protects it. Now, we've come to understand, haven't we, that the job of a good shepherd is to go and find a good table, a field of green grass, and then to drive away and keep away the enemies whilst the sheep eat. He finds the best pasture, and once he's found the pasture, he puts his sheep in it, and he keeps the enemies away who are constantly sniffing around wherever the sheep go. Sheep stink, so the enemy know where to find them. Now, verse 5 could say, you prepare a table before me, and my enemies watch us eat at a distance. Yesterday in our leadership team gathering, somebody shared The enemy knows that our God knows how to give us a good feast. So they're always gathering around and they're watching what we're eating. You prepare a table before me and my enemies watch us eat at a distance. And I sense God would say to us today, would you let me handle the people who have hurt you? And would you get on with the job of living your life without focusing on your enemies? I've got your back. 
my rod and my staff, they're going to bring comfort to you. My rod is going to protect you. Let me be your shepherd, and I'm going to drive away your enemies whilst you enjoy the feast that I have provided for you. Do you know, it's impossible to eat if you're constantly thinking you're about to be eaten. And a sheep can eat because the sheep knows that the shepherd is going to deal with the enemy. As you think about that person who's hurt, would you hurt you? Would you know that God has got this, that you don't have to deal with them? God has promised that he will take care of every injustice and he'll do it in his way. Now, sometimes we would love to call down the fire from heaven and see our enemies char-grilled, wouldn't we? But God tends not to do that, but he is a God of justice. Why? Because he is a just God. He can be nothing else. So if you're sat here this morning and you've got a situation of injustice on your mind when, where you've been hurt, would you allow God to deal with it? The only thing, and I, I say the only thing, knowing it's probably the most difficult thing that we have to do, is to forgive the person who's wronged us. Now, forgiveness is not the same as saying, it doesn't matter, it's okay that you've hurt me. Forgiveness is not denying that evil is being done in this world. But forgiveness means, in part, turning things over to God and not holding on to them and simply saying to God, you settle this, God, because I can't. God wants to deal with the people who have hurt us. Let God be your shepherd, and he'll delight in what, uh, and delight in what he's provided for you, even if your enemies are still sniffing around. But then secondly, there's a challenge, I think, from this psalm to let God tend to our wounds. David is able to say, you anoint my head with oil. Now, shepherds put oil on the heads of sheep for two reasons. Firstly, to soothe them, and secondly, to heal them. If you like, in Bible times when it was concerning sheep, oil was the equivalent of jungle formula or a, a tube of savlon. The worst enemy that sheep have are interestingly not wolves, they're actually flies. They can't shake off the flies with their hooves or their tails. And during the summer months, this is a really beautiful thought here, flies get right up their nose, but flies also lay eggs and the larva drives them crazy in their fur or whatever it is that sheep have uh, surrounding them. And do you know what? I can really relate to a sheep with this regard. It's the really little things that get up my nose and irritate me. More often than not, I can cope with the really big things of life, but it's the little things that bug me. It's the little things that really get on my, week, on my wick. It's the toilet seat. It's the toothpaste. It's the colleague at work who undermines you. It's the little things. Sorry. <laughs> and I wonder, how do you deal with those feelings? How do you deal with those things? Be they really small things or be they great things in the scheme of life? Those things that really get your goat to really mix the metaphors this morning. In another psalm of David, Psalm 147, he says this, God heals the brokenhearted and he bandages their wounds. And God is saying to us this morning, not only will I settle the score, but if you'll come to me and you'll let me have your hurts, I'll settle the score and then I'm going to do a bit of repair work on you at the same time. I'm going to restore your spirit. I'm going to deal with that hurt that you're carrying through life. I'm going to bring healing where there's been divorce or family breakdown. I'm going to bring healing where there's been financial or business failure, where there's been abuse or neglect, unkindness of any kind. That stuff that takes a toll on your life, God promises that he will heal our broken hearts. But I wonder how does all that work in practice? What, what bandages does God have to heal our emotional wounds when other people hurt us? Well, there are lots of things. I want to pick out just three. First is prayer. 
We can tell God how we feel. What I love about the example of David in the Psalms is that he was so fantastically honest with God. He just unloaded at God on a regular basis. God hears our prayers and he loves to respond to those prayers. So let's get honest with him. And the second is church family. God uses churches, not buildings, but the people who are the real church. And he can use those as bandages to bring healing in our lives. Do you know, I experienced a beautiful thing this morning on the front row of church. I had 10-year-old Adam and old pensioner Kay uh, on the other side of me, (laughs) both bolting out the same song. Light of the world, you step down into darkness. And then together we sang the chorus. And here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. I can't tell you how moved I was to hear Adam and Kay belting that out next to me. Church family is, is precious, isn't it? And it can bring healing to us. We're not designed to do life on our own. You ask Fiona, Britain's loneliest sheep, Google it if you don't know what I'm talking about. And then thirdly, one of the bandages that God uses is worship, sung in every other kind of worship, our adoration to God. Somehow when I gather with other people, when I worship on my own, God brings healing into my life and the hurts start to be healed. The challenge to let God tend to our wounds. And then thirdly and finally, uh, David says, my cup overflows. Have you ever been to somebody's house and you've wondered how long you're supposed to stay? Have you ever wondered that? When is the right time to leave? Or perhaps we can understand this better. Have you ever had someone come to your house and you don't know how to tell them to get lost? (laughs) You've already come down in your pajamas. You've already switched off the light and yawned a lot, but they're still there. How do you get rid of people like that? Well, There's a great custom in the Middle East, and we should adopt it here, that everyone knew when to stay and when to go because of the filling of the cup. If you came to somebody's house, even if you were a total stranger, the very first thing they would do is offer you you a cup of water or of wine. And then once you drunk that cup and you'd put it down, they would refill it. You drink the cup, they refill it. You drink the cup, they refill it. And for as long as your cup was being refilled, it meant that you were welcome to stay. Now, if you came to somebody's house and after several refills and they left the cup empty, guess what? It's your cue to leave. Now, of course, if the host decided they really, really liked the person, they wanted them to stay a really long time, they would fill the cup and they would keep refilling the cup. In fact, there was this beautiful symbolic action they would take that if they really, really loved you and were enjoying your company, they would actually allow the cup just to overflow on the table. And if you saw an overflowing cup flooding the table, it meant that you were special. And the Bible says, my cup overflows. David is able to say, because of my relationship with God, my cup overflows, therefore I must be special. And I wonder if you can claim that image for yourself this morning. Because of your relationship with Jesus, your cup is constantly filled to the point of overflowing. And it's a sign and a symbol before God, the host, that he loves you and he delights in your company. When God says to you, I'm going to fill your cup to overflowing, it means you matter and that you're special to him. Would you claim that truth as yours this morning? I wonder today if you're hurting because somebody's hurt you really badly. Jesus invites you today to a banquet. He says, I've prepared prepared for you a table, even in the presence of your enemy. Sure, they might still be sniffing around, but would you eat? And would you enjoy the banquet without fear? Because I'm going to deal with the enemy. I'm going to deal with the one who inflicted the hurt upon you. 
He says, I'm going to anoint your head with oil. I'm going to heal your wounds. Your cup is going to overflow and it's going to keep overflowing. I'm going to settle the score. I'm going to soothe the wounds. I will satisfy every single one of your needs. It's an invitation to a banquet and the banquet is of wholeness, of help and salvation and of healing. And you can be the recipient of that today if only you will trust Jesus as the good shepherd. And as I draw to a close this morning, I simply want to ask you, have you trusted the good shepherd as your shepherd? Will you allow him this morning to lead you into that green pasture, to lead you to the banquet? Will you allow him today to anoint your head to bring healing, to soothe you, but to deal with the midges? Will you today recognize that in Jesus you have an overflowing cup and God gave the very best thing he could give for you? Why? Because he loves you and he delights in you so much. What a truth that we can claim. In a moment, we're going to sing a song together and the worship group are going to lead this song and in a sense, use it to minister to us. And I'd invite you, if you feel led to sit, to say sitting. If you want to stand and join in, that's absolutely fine. Respond as God leads you. And this morning, Kay and I would love to offer to you the opportunity to be anointed, to very simply to take a small amount of oil and to mark your head with the sign of the cross in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Why this morning? To remind you how much you're loved and how much you're cherished. And maybe this morning as you receive that anointing from us, would you know God's affirmation and his assurance over your life today? Would you know as you receive that anointing this morning that God wants to deal with your enemy, that he wants to soothe the hurt that you might be wrestling with? So as we sing, we're just going to invite you to come forward. We'll be stood left and right, and we are only going to mark your head with a cross and do nothing else, and you can return to your seat as we allow God to minister to us this morning as his spirit moves. Stand or